Hi, I'm Marissa Kakaro, and this is Something to Someone, a podcast where I talk about something cool to someone cool. I am joined today by my best friend, Hannah. Hey guys, how's it going? This season, we are exploring Emperor Menelik of Ethiopia, the only African monarch to defeat European colonialism during the scramble for Africa. That is super impressive sounding. Tell me more. Yeah. <laughs> Great. So today is episode three. We have encountered three different emperors of Ethiopia so far, which I'm just very quickly going to recap. Uh, yeah, there were emperor. a lot of emperors that did a lot of yeah. messed up things, but also a lot of impressive things. Can't deny. That's basically this whole story is everybody is like slightly horrible, but real impressive. I like that. You should definitely make that a catchphrase. <laughs> slightly horrible, but real impressive. Your next husband. <laughs> So, Emperor Tiwadras reigned from 1855 to 1868. He is the one who took Menelik prisoner for about 10 years, but he was very good to him. He was a father figure. He even gave him his daughter, Altash, to marry. After 10 years, Menelik escaped by getting his guards drunk and simply walking away. Ah, the baller move, right. (laughs) Uh, Then... Tiwadras ends up turning into what we refer to as a mad king after the death of his wife. And he ends up starting a war with the English because Queen Victoria never responded to his letters. As the like the battle was raging between his men and the English army, he realized that he was losing and he went and he took Queen Victoria's pistol and shot himself. Epic. And then we get to the forgotten emperor, Georgis. Oh, I literally from... forgot him. I'm not going to lie. <laughs> he ruled from 1868 to 1871, and he could never solidify enough power and enough alliances between the five major tribes that he made, like, the whole three years of his reign, he was in battle, and he died after three years. Like, he just died on the battlefield. That's it. In glory. Three years is battling and then dying. Yeah, he was very, like, I'm curious to see what would have happened had he been able to do something else with his time besides just continually fight people, but nope, that's not the way the world worked. One of the great mysteries of history. And then Emperor Johannes came to power in 1871 and lasted until 1889. He was the one who defeated the Egyptians. Good chunk of time. A good chunk of time, yeah. Uh, he defeated the Egyptians, which um, he did pretty early on in his reign, so that really solidified him as the emperor and gave everybody sort of cause to pledge allegiance to him. Menelik tried to rebel against him in Gojam. That did not work. No. <laughs> and so he had to submit this is also right after his second wife, Menelik's second wife, Bafina, attempted a coup on him. So he didn't have a good time then. No. For the rest of Johannes's reign, Menelik is very two-faced. He will smile to Johannes and say, everything's fine. You can trust me. You can trust me. And then all the while, he kept creating these plots that ended up falling through to usurp Johannes. In... 1885, the Italians have started to encroach on Ethiopian territory, and 
Johannes tells them to leave, but the Italians gaslight him and go like, oh, we just need some room to exercise and we need some fresh air. So we're just going to take over this one plateau. (laughs) But in secret, they've been building a rail line into the mainland of the country. Liars. (laughs) But also during all of this, Johannes is also fighting off the Sudanese Muslims who have been pissed at Johannes for something he did way back in 1884. They kill him, take his head, and having completed their revenge, leave Ethiopia. Well, you know, they got what they came for. They did. We've actually had, like, a number of different forces, like, enter Ethiopia, do, like, one terrible thing, and then get out again. (laughs) I guess that might have helped Menelik and the other rulers. Yeah. To much fanfare, Menelik becomes emperor in... November 1889, just to like very quickly recap, he was married twice before, which I've kind of touched on. And then currently, so in November of 1889, he is married to Taitu. She had been married four times before, twice to soldiers who get imprisoned by the other emperors, and once to Bifina's brother, who ended up abusing her, so she was able to divorce him just in time to ingratiate herself with Menelik in 1883. And then became a real bad, awesome, bad in a good way, 80s way, awesome hostess with the most. Yeah. Oh, the feast, man. The feast. That the she feast. Had. So now that we've done a really quick recap, I think that was fairly quick. Sure. Not that bad. Sure, sure, sure. <laughs> We're going to start sort of delving more deeply into Menelik and Taitu and their dynamic between them. As we sort of have heard about, Menelik is a tinkerer, so he really likes taking things apart and putting things back together. He loves meeting people, specifically foreigners. He hated saying no to people. Like, instead he would pacify them or say something like, we'll see, or let's talk tomorrow, and then he would allow other people within his court to, like, go and say no on his behalf officially. You know, I think that that's a strong leader. (laughs) Just kidding. Actually, I don't. (laughs) The wonderful thing is that Taitu had absolutely no problem telling people no. Good for her. There's a Amharic word, imbi, I-M-B-I, which means absolutely not. And apparently it was her favorite word to say. (laughs) Imbi? Imbi. I like that word. I like that yeah. absolutely not is one word. Imbi. It seems appropriate. Imbi. Yeah. 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 I hope I'm <laughs> pronouncing it right. I am B I. I feel like I can't mess that up too much. No. I could be. <laughs> we'll find out. Yeah. She was not afraid to make decisions or to lead or to get things done. And so she, like, they paired off against each other really well. They were a good team. Yeah. There's a very classic dynamic in leadership where you will have, usually because it's a man who's a leader, he'll also have, like, his chief of staff or um, something. But it's like, like, you want people to still like the leader, but you need someone to be mad at when you don't get what you want. The fall person. Yeah. Scapegoat. And so Taito 
was perfectly fine sort of taking on that role because she was so strong and her family was so well-connected. She didn't really have any worries that anything was going to happen to her. And that's true. Nothing really does happen to her. So she was right. Yeah. So she could she could sort of be the person that everybody hated as everybody loved Menelik because it's, it's more important that he has the love. And then it's also very important that there's somebody in the relationship who actually is getting shit done. So they were, in a sense, co-rulers. Yes. Very, very much so. A number of journals and primary sources of the time from ambassadors and foreign visitors pointed out that she was the one that you needed to, like, especially for, like, a big decision. If Taitu didn't agree, Menelik wouldn't do it. Ooh. So it was like they, you had to, you had to convince both of them. Well, a lot of men also hated her. There's a lot of... That does not surprise me. Like I said, she was the scapegoat. So, like, when an ambassador didn't get a deal that he wanted, he would just sort of, in his journal, write about how terrible Taitu was and how Menelik would be completely reasonable if she wasn't influence on him. Were there murder plots hatched against her? Assassinations? (sighs) Yeah. There's a whole bunch of stuff I can't get into because we don't have time. So, yeah, Menelik and Taitu were two sides of the same coin, and both were needed to rule the empire as well as it, as well as they did. So in this episode, we are going to finally get to the Italian-Ethiopian War. Dun, dun, dun. And just to recap really quickly what this war stems from is right after Menelik became emperor... Oh, this of is Ethiopia. This is our friend Antonelli. 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 He signs a treaty with a friend of his, an Italian diplomat, Count Antonelli, who has been in his in Menelik's court for a while now. In this treaty, in Article Seventeen, there is one word that is translated that is means something different in the Amharic. And Italian translations. Oh, so right. in the, yeah, the Italian translation says Ethiopia must go through Italy to talk to any foreign government. It's like one of those like technical. Well, technically, you're now our protectorate, even though it's hidden in Article 17, and it's like this one word. Because in the Amharic translation, the word is may instead of have to. So Ethiopia may go through Italy to talk to any other foreign nationals, but they don't have to, and therefore... So smart. It's sneaky. Mm, yes. <laughs> and at the time that they're, they've signed the treaty, they don't know that there's this difference in translation. How they end up finding out is because... After he becomes the emperor, he send Menelik sends letters to, I'm presuming, all of the European courts, but he only gets a response from Queen Victoria because I think <gasps> they learned their lesson. She's writing letters again. <laughs> yeah. Once again, I don't really know if she's the one writing it, but she gets a, he gets a letter saying that, or sorry, he sends a letter to Queen Victoria sending that he wants, saying that he wants to send an envoy to London. And if they could start talking about trading arms, because Menelik loves guns and he's been buying them and collecting them from anyone he can. However, well, it makes sense as he's the head of the military too, right? 
Yeah. Yep. He's like pulling in as many resources as he can for his yeah. people. Yeah. However, in June 1890. Okay. So first off, I just want to point out that in episode one, Queen Victoria did not send a letter and that caused a war. And now Queen Victoria is going to send a letter, but she ends up putting her foot in her mouth and starting a war. Oh, Vicky. This is the response that Queen Victoria sends Menelik. Inasmuch as the Italian government here notified us that by treaty concluded on May 2nd, 1889, the king of Ethiopia consents to avail himself of the government of Italy for the conduct of all matters with other governments. So that basically said, because of the treaty you signed with Italy, we cannot have direct negotiation with you. And did Menelik turn around and go say what? Yes. Yes, 100% he did. Can you repeat? (laughs) So Menelik and Taitu are furious and they're very confused. And they had a dinner where they called all of the Italian diplomats currently in court, most notably, not Antonelli. His old bestie. Yeah, Antonelli has gone back to Italy with the Treaty of Luchali. He thinks his job is done. He's secured Ethiopia as a protectorate of Italy. Like, he's done it. However, Antonelli is the one who, like, understands the subterfuge that was at play, and no one else is aware that Menelik didn't understand what was going on, so... All of the Italians, like, they they don't keep up the ruse. Right, because they don't know there is a ruse. Exactly. So Menelik calls all, in all of the Italians Uh-oh. and has both the Amharic and the Italian versions read aloud. Oh, no. Once the Italians who are present explain... Actually... Not He doesn't do anything terrible yet. <laughs> He's not going to throw them and their chopped bodies over a ravine? No. I'm nope, mentally, not- <laughs> mentally preparing myself for that. <laughs> he is not a man king. He is a very benevolent, benevolent king. So the Italians at that dinner are like, yeah, no, it means you're a protectorate. Like, if you want to talk to England, you have to go through Italy. Like, Italy will talk to England for you. And Menelik, I'm assuming, is fuming and storms off. And he sends a letter to Italy demanding that they alert all the European courts that Article 17 has been mistranslated and that they are not a protectorate. Laying it down. Yeah. Italy, once they get this letter, turn around and say, Antonelli, what have you done? (laughs) (laughs) Bad, Antonelli. Bad. (laughs) And they send him... Back to Ethiopia to go fix it. <laughs> Why? Why did he send him? Why not start afresh? It's a great question, Hannah. Okay. So on December 17th, 1890, Antonelli returns to Menelik's court. And I hate this man so much. He blames the Amharic translator, whose name is Yosef. <gasps> And says it was his fault that he used the word may instead of using the word that means consent to. Mm. Which does nothing for him because Menelik is not mad at the translation. 
Menelik is mad that Ethiopia is acting like a protectorate and everybody thinks it's a protectorate. So, like, if Antonelli had arrived and been like, oh, I'm so sorry, I will go back and fix it on my end because, like, my end is the problem. No, he goes and is like, no, it's his fault. And it's like, no, dude, when we were talking about the treaty, I agreed to going through the Italian government if I saw a need to. Like, we didn't talk about this. So don't blame the translator. I'm glad he had his translators back. That's some messed up stuff. Apparently, Menelik yelled at him so much he lost his voice. Wow. And so he sends Antonelli away. Antonelli never, ever admits his fault for doing this. And how do we know it was Antonelli? Because Antonelli was the one in charge of the negotiations for the treaty. But did he read and write the other language? Yeah, he knew both languages. Oh, okay. Well, oh, that's not true. He knew Italian well enough to know that he could change that one word and well enough to know that the Ethiopians would not pick up on the nuances of the Italian translation. But there is no actual hardcore proof that it was him. It just kind of all signs point to it being him. Oh, like, so... Like, you have a letter saying, like, we got him. They don't know, but we did this. There's none of that. So my assumption is that Antonelli was trying to prove himself back in Italy. And if he could secure... Ethiopia as a protectorate without having to go to war with Ethiopia like they've had to do with other African countries. Right. So I guess what I'm asking is, is there like a letter saying that? No. Antonelli. So, so you know, the, the two he could have done it. But he might, he might not have done it. There is like a shadow the of the The question doubt. is whether he, whether he knew the consequences the different translations would have whether he knew he was tricking the Ethiopians or not mm-hmm. is sort of the question. So, yeah, right. you, could, you could play it that he didn't pick up on the nuances of the translation. But I find that very hard because in my mind, his end goal yeah. was to get Ethiopia to be a protectorate of Italy. And I think that's the difference of how you and I look at history. Because I think you're seeing it from... Like a very human characteristic, like from everything else you know about him, this is this is what happened because there's no like emotionally other way that it could. But then, it, as a historian, you just look at bare facts, and if you, it's like being a, a lawyer, right, and saying like, I can't prove beyond a shadow of a doubt that this person actually did it. I just know that they did it. Yeah, because I'm not coming at it from the point of a film or from a historian. I'm yeah. I'm a storyteller. Yeah. We need a hero and a villain. And right now Antonelli is the villain. I love that. I know. I just find it so interesting. Okay. <laughs> I think it's important for the podcast. Well, if he's not intentional villain, like if he did not know that he was tricking them, he's right. an idiot. <laughs> well, there's that. That's also what I'm saying. Because it's also in the response, the fact that he doesn't go, oh, my bad, let me fix this on my mm-hmm. end. Mm-hmm. The fact that he, because the what we're going to talk about as we keep going is like, he just puts his foot down. Like, no, there's no negotiation on Article 17. You are a protectorate of Italy. Right. And Menelik is being like, but that's not what we discuss. Mm-hmm. Completely. 
That is that is ridiculous. Yes, especially. Well, maybe I'm wrong, because the next point that I have is Antonelli like really realizes how angry Menelik is, and that he wants Article Seventeen struck completely, and so he tries to negotiate. Oh, but it's kind of weird because it's. Well, here, okay. So he brings Menelik an amendment. Basically, the amendment would change Article 17 to read the following. In the event that Ethiopia might ask for a protectorate, she would give preference to Italy. Interesting. Menelik responds with his own proposed amendment that read, Italy makes it known that the empire of Ethiopia is not its protectorate, and the empire (laughs) will refuse any other power such a declaration. That is, I like it. It's very clean, very straightforward. It's not making me go, what? Yeah. Just like, no, 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 no. I think it's probably this very, like, European mindset of, like, you're an African country. Of course a European power is going to colonize you at some point. So, like, if it's going to be anything, it's going to be Italy. And it's, like, it's very European-centric. Yeah, right? And so it's, like, but no one's like, Menelik's like, no, no one's going to colonize me. I am an emperor. Damn straight. So Antonelli then changes tack and tries to tell Menelik and Taitu that if Italy were to change the wording of the treaty, it would make Italy look weak to other European powers. And therefore, it would make Ethiopia weak since Italy uh, uh, is Ethiopia's best uh, friend. Uh, uh, <laughs> that is such a whack thing to say. <laughs> You know, you're, you're going to make me look really bad. And because you're going to make me look really bad and we're best friends, like, that's going to make you look really bad. What? That's literally what it does. Oh, it does, so did Menelik see right through this? Wait, hold on. I want to read you, like, the exact quote. Antonelli argued that annulment of Article 17 would render Italy powerless to defend the integrity of Ethiopia and that Italy could not change the Italian text without losing its dignity. To which Taitu immediately responds <laughs> that Ethiopia must, too, maintain their dignity. Yeah. And this is a direct quote from Taitu. You want other countries to see Ethiopia as your protege, but that will never be. Mm. And then dismisses him. That must cut deep uh, for an Italian because the Italians are protégés of the Romans. And they, like, they think of themselves as, like, well, okay, I'm I'm speaking on behalf of a people that I am not of. But from my understanding, <laughs> it's, like, it's a very important thing to be, you know, to be the next. And so yeah. if he's saying, you know, you are, you are the next Italy, that's, I would think, a very big thing for Antonelli to say. I wonder if most Italians felt that way at that time? I don't know. I don't know. But from the way the scene is just, like, the way that I see the scene, this is the last thing that Taitu says to Antonelli, and then Taitu is the one to dismiss Antonelli. Mm. So the idea that a black woman has the last word and a black woman has the power to dismiss him, mm-hmm. I think that's also, like, another oh, huge on Antonelli. Huge. Yeah. I could only... Wrap my brain around that. Yeah. Yeah. So Antonelli is thoroughly annoyed at how things are going. And this is just like a funny uh, anecdote. But one day he goes into the dining hall and apparently 
people of a certain rank would stand up as he passed. Mm -hmm. And this apparently included translators. And so one day he goes into the dining hall and Yosef, the translator who worked on the treaty, is sitting there. And when Antonelli passes him by, Yosef does not stand up. Yeah. Antonelli notices and goes back to him, yells at him for being rude and like asks him, like, how dare you not stand up when I pass? And Yosef simply says, I love this line, I did not get up because you don't like me. That's right. Again, super straightforward. (laughs) I love it. Uh, So it's great. So the next time Antonelli gets to talk with Menelik, he sort of tries to bluff him and goes like, well, if you're not going to negotiate with me, just to understand, Antonelli only tried to negotiate once and it was sort of like a fingers crossed behind the back type of negotiation. But he basically is like, Menelik, if you don't want to work with me, I might as well leave and trade will dry up because Italy will never work with you because you're so like insulting and obstinate. So he just sort of chastises Menelik and apparently that works kind of. So Menelik... What? What? That doesn't seem right. Menelik is done with Antonelli, but he's not done with Italy. So he wants to do something... He basically goes back to Taitu. Mm-hmm. I'm reading into this. There's no proof that they had this discussion. But I think he goes back to Taitu and is basically like, we can't lose Italy, but like, we have to get Antonelli off our backs on this one. And we also have to make sure that like Article 17 gets changed. So they come up with a plan to trick Antonelli. Oh. They give him four letters and have him sign... All four as, like, a witness to the declaration, right? Okay. These letters are in Amharic. Okay. They are not in Italian. But Menelik tells Antonelli, I want you to send these letters. Would you mind citing them? So one of the letters is to Italy, stating how much Ethiopia values their friendship. One is to all of the European courts, making it clear where the borders of Ethiopia are now. Because in the treaty... They had given away the land that becomes Eritrea. One was giving consent to build a telegraph line to Antoto, which the Italians would do. And then one asking for an alliance between Ethiopia, England, and Italy to continue to fight the Sudanese Muslims. That all sounds okay besides, well, yeah, that all sounds okay. Right? So Antonelli is very pleased and eagerly adds a signature to these letters. But when he takes them back to his people and has them translated into Italian, he realizes the letter to Italy saying that, like, we value our friendship a lot. There is included a sentence that says, to, like, preserve our friendship, we recommend abrogating Article 17. (gasps) And abrogate means to, like, cancel or to break. Wow. Wow. That's some sneaky. They sneak deserve sneak. Yeah, they literally, like, fire with fire gave him his own medicine. So Antonelli takes the signed letter, the Amharic translation, mm-hmm. and storms up to the throne room and pounds so on the he's, door. So he's gone, he's horsebacked and boated over back to Italy and then done the same thing back oh, the no, other no, no, way. Oh, no, 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 sorry. <laughs> 
uh, Antonelli took it back to, like, the people in his house and in Addis Ababa. Ah, okay, that makes such more sense. So, like, he, yeah, he has, like, he has a translator in his, like, immediate staff. Oh, gotcha. <laughs> so, he storms back to the throne room, he pounds on the door, one of Menelik's generals comes out and asks him what was wrong. <clears throat> so, this is Antonelli's direct account. I protested strongly against this treachery. The general told me to give him the paper to show the emperor. I tore off my signature as well as the resident general's seal as a precaution before giving it to him. The general was pained as in tearing off my signature, I also I had also torn off the emperor's seal. So he just, like, tore this paper up in front of a general in front of the throne room. Ooh. Is that a declaration of war in some sense? That Menelik does not take it as such. They get called into the throne room and... He's like, let this guy have his hissy fit. Yeah. So this is within Menelik's account. I mean, Antonelli's account. Menelik maintained that what was sent to me was identical to what we had discussed. I I maintained the opposite, which is the exact reversal of how Antonelli was treating Menelik with the Treaty of Wuchal. Right. And so... (laughs) And then this is once again my favorite part, because Taitu just comes in with the sass. Yay! She, <laughs> so Taitu held out the Amharic version of the Treaty of Uchal and asked Antonelli to show her the words in it that said Ethiopia was under Italian protection. He Ooh. could not, because that word does not exist in the Amharic translation. <gasps> and once again, he is dismissed. Wow, but he keeps coming back for more. Yeah, so Antonelli and all the other Italian diplomats under his supervision leave Ethiopia in February of 1891. Okay. This is actually a bit of a problem. We have not talked about any other Italian besides Antonelli. No. We've just, like, referred, like, I've there are the other Italians. Italians there. I've talked about, yeah, right? So there are other Italians that have been around, and they've been around for so long that they have, like, wives and kids in Ethiopia. That's like their home. Married. Yeah. So when they have to leave, they have quite the conundrum. Oh. Because they cannot, for stupid reasons, for racist, silly reasons, they cannot bring their wives and kids back to Italy. Their reputation would be ruined. Oh. Yeah. That's messed up. And they don't want to leave... But they're like, but they still care about these people, which I think is nice. The point that I'm trying to make is a number of these Italian men actually bought land in their wives' name and left a good deal of money so that, like, yes, they had to go back to Italy, but they were going to try and set them up as well as they could. I guess it's the honorable thing. If you're not looking through it through a 2020 lens, it would have been the most honorable thing at that time to do. Yeah. And also, in Ethiopia, there's no shame in having already been married and having already have kids. So I'm assuming a lot of these wives just went on to remarry. Okay. Still upsetting. Or maybe they didn't have to because of the money that the Italians left them. Right. Like, maybe they had that option. I don't know. But I just, I think it's a fun little, like, side story. It is. It is a nice little tidbit. (laughs) It's making the world fuller. And as far as I know, Antonelli running back to Europe... Uh, after Taitu very sassily dismisses him, is the last we really see of him. <gasps> he just kind of goes into obscurity? 
Yeah, because he failed. So, like, he goes back mm. to Italy and he doesn't, he definitely does not have the reputation he was hoping to secure because now Italy has to deal with Ethiopia resisting them. Not their colony. Something that I haven't mentioned is that from, I believe, 1888 to 1892, there's a famine going on. Oh, no. No, that was that was very unmentioned. Yeah, that's well, a long that's, famine. I mean, we've only lived through nine years, months of yeah. Corona, and we were, you know, luckily, you know what I mean. That yeah, it so, felt like a long time. They had a couple years of bad rain. They had a couple different um, animal viruses go around. Like oh. uh, cattle's would have to be put down and not ingested. Yeah, and not ingested, but. Thankfully, while Ethiopia is sort of in the grips of this famine, Italy doesn't make any significant advances into colonizing any more land than they already have in Eritrea. Hmm. Huh, I wonder why. Well, because no one... Europe isn't really taking the letters Menelik sends seriously. I feel like the mentality in Europe is like, they're all of the adults... Who are, like, mm. talking and discussing things. And Menelik is just, like, this some um, obnoxious little kid who keeps coming up and, like, asking for more pie. Like, they just have to, like, wow. they just ignore him. Racism. <laughs> and then also, Italy has some domestic problems that are going on. There's... Well, they're a brand new a country of... as of 1865. Italy is? Italy as a country did not exist until 1860, 1865. Oh, shoot. I don't know what the date is. It's one of those two. Um, it used to be a bunch of city-states. And then, only then, did they come under one ruler. All right. I'm going to Google this really fast. Mm-hmm. Unification, 1861. Okay, cool. Thank you. You're welcome. Um, yeah, because they had a king and a prime minister. Yes. Because there's Kim Uberto. Umberto? Umberto? Umberto. Um, <laughs> he... I'm going to get so many comments of how obnoxious that sounded. Anyway. (laughs) (laughs) The Italian king kind of makes appearances. Like, I keep reading that Menelik is sending him letters, but the king is not responding to them as far as I'm aware. Mm -hmm. Um, Maybe he is, but they're just not mentioned because they don't hold that much significance. The prime minister is the one who really has the power. And um, he's sort of having to, like, deal with different elections that are going on. And there are a couple scandals there are a bunch of bank scandals that happen. Ooh. Uh, Banca Romana. Ooh. So Italy is sort of also trying to deal with this diplomatically. They don't want to go to war. They basically just want to convince Menelik to go along with the treaty they've signed. So they keep sending diplomats and they keep giving him more guns and ammunition because, like, Menelik just really likes them. He likes his guns. So we have to get into a bit of minutia. Minutia. the treaty... <laughs> That's a word. Yeah, that's a big word. All right, let's keep going into this minutia. You said, I thought I pronounced it wrong. I was like, no, that's a word. It's a word. It's a real word. So part of the treaty we haven't talked about is Article 16. No, we, we definitely haven't. <laughs> nope, only Article 17. I don't. You know what's funny? I don't know what Article 1 of this treaty is. Like, these are the only <laughs> two articles that I know. 
So part of the treaty that we haven't talked about is Article 16, which states that the treaty will last five years, and after five years, it can be renegotiated. So Menelik and Taitu, like, because they're dealing with a famine and because Italy isn't really doing anything on their side, decide that the most diplomatic way to end this is to simply not renegotiate and let the treaty lapse. Uh, yeah. I think something else to be pointed out is that almost all of their surrounding area is by proxy controlled by Europeans. Mm-hmm. They're... That's pretty impressive. The, yeah, so they're, I mean, literally, they're the one of two countries in the entire continent that does not get colonized. Wow. So they're being very smart and, like, they're not going to go to war unless they have to. They really don't want to go to war because, from their perspective, everybody who's ever gone to war has lost. Right. And this would be very personal, this one. Yes. Because they've, like, been friends with Italians for so long. Like, they Italians were, like, a very integral part of their court for a decade or two at this mm-hmm. point. So Menelik and Taitu decide that the most diplomatic way to end this is to simply not renegotiate and let the treaty lapse. So on February 27th, 1893, Menelik sends letters to Italy, Germany, France, and England saying that the treaty will be null and void as of May 1st, 1894. <laughs> 1894. Though he makes sure to include lots of positive sentiments about Italy and that they're still on very good terms. Da, da, da. But we just don't trust those motherfuckers no more. Basically, just read between the lines, if you will. <laughs> Once again, Menelik and Taitu are very pragmatic. And during this four-year period of time between them finding out that they've been tricked into this treaty... And what will eventually happen. They buy as many guns as they can, specifically from Italy, because they're, like, still trying to be on good terms with them. But they also start accepting guns from France and England. And it ends up being really interesting because he basically, Menelik plays all of the European countries against each other. Because he plays nice with everybody. And everybody sort of, therefore, thinks he's, like, easy to manipulate. Boy, were they wrong. Yeah, and they want to be the one with, like, the greatest amount of influence and therefore the greatest ability to manipulate. So they're like, yeah, we'll give you guns because, like, they know France and uh, England are giving guns. And then it's like France high school because they know. She couldn't get that guy, but I'm going to be the one that's going to change yeah. him and he'll be better and, like, it will be because of me. And not that I ever thought that way. Let me make that very clear. Uh-huh. So he's he also spends these four years between like uh, from his inauguration to eighteen ninety four the the last four years reinforcing his dominance and expanding his territory. So he expands Ethiopia by quite a bit, and he also gets everybody like all of the princes of all of the different regions to swear fealty to him, including Johannes's son. Wow. Who he, Johannes, uh, so Johannes' son is Magesha. He holds off submitting for a very long time. Basically well, right up until war with Italy, because that's when... He has the best claim, right? Yeah. Yeah, by the beginning of 1894, everybody has sworn fealty to Menelik as the emperor. Ooh. And during all of this time, he's actually created a new set of taxes, and this is very genius, in some regions, he starts demanding part of their crop and their cattle instead of cash. Ah. Because then 
when he does call his men to battle, he has all of the resources ready to go. That's so smart. Right? That's so smart. So Italy has not really noticed that Menelik has been doing all of this and they haven't been taking him seriously. Also, a lot of the Italians believed that Ethiopia was not a threat because they were so divided. Because there has been like a huge amount of, well, not really a huge amount of turnover. But enough for it not to feel like a Vic- Queen Victoria size security. Yeah. Yes. And it is true that like, like I said, there's a lot that I'm not going into, but there are a lot of like plots going on behind the scenes because like all of the, all of the princes think that they can be emperor. I think that it's a testament to Menelik that a new era of princes does not start again. And we've also, like, we've just, like, in the last episode, Menelik went behind Johannes's back a lot. And in the episode before that, Bafinia was going behind Menelik's back. Like, it's very common. A little bit of backstabbing. But yet, all's good in the end. Yeah, so Italy was like, look, they'll never be able to organize against us. Like, we don't really have to pay attention to how angry they are at us. However, and I think that this is very interesting, there was a common saying at the time, and this is the quote, of a black snake's bite, you may be cured, but from the bite of a white snake, you will never recover. So there was what Italian Italy did not count on was like the nationalism and the pride and the contempt for white people. Hmm. Yeah. I mean, it's interesting because they're also a country that has just become unified. At the same time. Yeah. Right when they're secretly, Ethiopia is secretly unifying themselves. Yeah. Ooh. Interesting. So now, after two and a half episodes of this podcast, we finally get to the main event. Hey! <laughs> the, it, it's referred to as the Italo-Ethiopian War, which I think is an interesting way to phrase that. It's okay. Just, it's just Italio. But anyway. Italio. Italio-Ethiopian War. It started in Eritrea in December of 1894. Okay. Just a quick recap. Eritrea has been an Italian colony since 1889 as part of the Treaty of Utrali. And that's not that long ago. Nope. So Eritrea's are obviously pissed at the Italians. And as there's, like, more anti-Italian sentiment growing in the overall region, people start to get courageous. One of them is a local chief named Batahagos, spelled B-A-H-T-A, and then his last name is H-A-O... No, H-A-G-O-S. I'm going to refer to him. Yeah, I'm going to refer to him as Hagos for the rest of this. So on December 15th, Hagos attacks a fort in the town of Hali. Um, So the fort was garrisoned by 220 Italian men. And Hagos actually had the same amount of number, 220 men. And he surrounded the fort and started a siege. On December 18th, after being notified, Major Toselli with the Italian army, arrives with 1,500 men. Ooh. And within a day, they have sort of subdued the 220 Ethiopian men under, or Eritrean men under Hagos. Who have been on, um, who have been sieging for a while now. Uh, for three days. Yeah, they're tired. Then they got these yeah. new guys coming in, and they're just like, whoop. 
Yeah. There it is. So Hagos was killed in battle. And to sort of add insult to injury, Major Toselli just leaves his body unburied, which is very, very insulting. It's interesting because in European terrain, when you're like, your body is left out, you're like food for the crows, Mm -hmm. I think is the term. Yeah. The the term in Ethiopia is pray for the hyenas. Oh, God. Yeah. All of it is just awful sounding. Yeah. Not great. So the this victory gave the Italians, it reassured them in the fact that Ethiopians were not capable of taking them on. So they started crossing the like the border that they had agreed with with Ethiopia and started to just sort of take up like gobble up little towns near the border. So they were like very slowly advancing into Ethiopia. Oh, sneaky again. Sneaky. Yeah. Little dicks. Mangesha, who was the son of Emperor Johannes and had submitted to Menelik. In exchange for submitting to Menelik, he was given the title of Raz, um, R-A-S, which means prince. Um, So he was the prince of Tigray. And that that region is like the north of Ethiopia. So right on that border with Eritrea. Very important location. Yeah. So... When he heard about the defeat of Hagos at Hala, he gathered his men and marched to meet the Italians before they could continue advancing into Ethiopia. On January 13th, 1895, Mangesha's army is crossing the border into Eritrea properly, and the Italians ambush him. The Italians had sent out scouts, and they had found them the night before, and so the Italian general ordered his men to be ready by sunrise. And so it was one of those things where it's like the Italians are all very silently moving in the night. And then as soon as the sun comes up, they're like close enough to just strike. Wow. That's a good, ta- that's a good tactic. This is the, the journal entry in the Italian general book. A great commotion is visible in the hostile camp. Notwithstanding the sudden surprise, rapidly increasing groups of warriors swarm out with great promptitude and dash, advancing through the winding paths and small gorges, crossing them with wonderful agility, concealing their numbers, making a shield of their obstacles. They offer us only a small mark as they disappear from time to time and gather in greater numbers under the cover of the defenses. Wow, whoever wrote that was in awe of the Italians. No, that wasn't Italian in awe of the Ethiopians. Oh! That was the Italian general's journal entry. Oh, 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 gotcha. And so it just, like, goes to show you that the Ethiopians obviously have a much better understanding of their terrain. Yes. And so, like, even if they're ambushed, they're still able to put up this huge fight. Mm Mm-hmm. However, the Italians did have a better, like, strategic position and when Mengesha figured it out, he calls for the Tigres to uh, retreat. But the Italians follow and they end up overrunning Mengesha's camp a couple days later. Oh, no. And so Mengesha has to literally just run. Like, he has to leave all of his tents and all of his supplies and all of his weapons oh. and just run. So you gotta save his life. Gotta, yeah. Yeah. Menelik is pissed. When he finds out that this has happened, because Menelik never ordered anyone to go to war with Italy, 
And it ends up putting him in a really tricky spot where people are starting to talk about Mengesha with awe and reverence because he went, like, he had the courage to face the Italians. Mm -hmm. And defend Ethiopia. And Menelik has not been doing that. Menelik has been trying to figure it out diplomatically and just, like, wait until the treaty lapses, which is, like, not the most manly glorious thing to do Mm. however menelik does get a bit lucky because so there are short run short rain season that runs from february to may and then it's followed by long rains which run from june to mid-september so like from february to september it's very rainy oh (laughs) you don't want to go to battle when it's rainy because it's muddy Right. That would suck. Because Mangesha's attack happened in January, Menelik can basically postpone calling his army until September when the rainy season is over. So he still tries to do a couple things. He still tries to send a couple letters. Nobody responds to him the way (sighs) that he wants. Menelik, he's trying. He's trying. So on September 17th, 1895, he calls his men. And I got my friend Michael Beal Mejia to read it for us. Assemble the army. Beat the drum. God in his bounty has struck down my enemies and enlarged my empire and preserved me to this day. I have reigned by the grace of God. Enemies have come who would ruin our country and change our religion. They have passed beyond the sea that God gave us as our frontier. I, aware that herds were decimated and people were exhausted, did not wish to do anything until now. These enemies have advanced, burrowing into the country like moles. With God's help, I will get rid of them. Men of my country, up till now, I believe I have never wronged you, and you have never caused pain to me. Now, you who are strong, help me. And you who are weak, help with your prayers while you think of your children, your wife, and your faith. Wow. That, yeah, that's rousing. Yeah, that's a pretty decent proclamation. And so he basically tells everybody, meet at this town that's like a little bit north of Addis Ababa. And we're going to, like, go march to the Eritrea border and fight off the Italians. So a month later, on October 11th, Menelik and Taitu have assembled their personal armies, like everybody in Shiwa, and they march out of Addis Ababa, the capital of Ethiopia. Yeah, they do. It takes 18 days to travel to this meeting spot because the army is huge when it Leaves Addis Ababa, it has 50,000 people. When it reaches the meeting spot, it has 150,000 people. Whoa. There were 80,000 mules and 30,000 women who followed the army of 150,000 soldiers with, like, all of the food and all of the tents. And, like, you know, Menelik Menelik had his own tent and then all of his generals had their tents around him and Empress Taitu had her tent and then she had people within her, like, immediate staff that all had tents. And so it, like, it was just, it was huge. Wow. That sounds big. 
Yeah, and as far as the accounts say, it took, like, within an hour, this whole thing would be built. And within an hour, it would be taken down, which doesn't seem too bad. No. No, as someone who works on a crew for films and TV, that sounds incredible. All that manpower. So, it's a lot. Like, it's, this is a lot that's happening right now. And Menelik... All of this time, he's continuing to correspond with Italian diplomats. He basically says that if Italy will go back to the territory that they had already agreed upon and stop claiming Ethiopia as a protectorate, he will turn his army around. So he just keeps giving them chance after chance. Easy peasy. The Italians ignore this message. They just ignore it. They just ignore it. It's funny because a lot of them have, like, weird little, like, back and forth with, like, it'll be, like, generals of the Italians communicating with generals of the Ethiopians. And they'll basically be like, well, my king hasn't ordered me to leave yet, so I'm still coming. And the the Italians will respond like, well, my king hasn't ordered me to leave, so I'm staying. And if you get here, I'll fight you. Like, they're just, they're both like... <laughs> We can't, like, we would love to make peace. You and I, we would make peace in a minute, but our kings won't let us. Wow. Okay. (laughs) This is, like, two months later. December 6, 1895, Menelik's army has arrived at sort of what will become the first big battle. Ooh. It's at the city of Umba Alej, A-M-B-A. A-L-A-G-E. I'm really sorry if I'm mispronouncing all of this. (laughs) But this city, which I'm going to refer to as Umba, is occupied by Major Toselli, who was the one who routed Megatia earlier the year before. And also, Umba is on a plateau. Oh, no. It's like, it's on a mountain and there's like a plateau underneath it. So he can see... Menelik's army coming for him. It's a bit of an advantage point. Yes. And he describes Menelik's camp as a magic spectacle of illumination fires along the horizon in order three great columns. Wow. So that's... And this is 150,000 soldiers. Wow. Plus tens of thousands of women who are helping everybody and all of these mules. Like, it's a massive force. But Major Toselli, not worried. He's not worried at all. No? He think No, well, he thinks reinforcements are coming. Oh. Emphasis on thinks. Uh, <laughs> apparently, the night before battle, he gets drunk and he starts singing the Ave Maria. Oh. <laughs> That's a moment. Right? There's just like a drunk Italian man standing on a mountain as this plateau is filled with hundreds of thousands of people coming to kill him. Wow. So on December 7th, a small unit of men, a small unit of Ethiopian men are sent on a reconnaissance mission, but they end up coming across a small unit of Italians who are also on a reconnaissance mission, and they exchange shots. However, back in the day, I mean, to be fair, still guns are very, very loud, but like guns were also very, very loud back then. Yes. So when when these shots are heard in the Ethiopian camp, all of the men like rush out of their tents and grab their guns because they, you know, they don't want to miss the war. Right. And they think 
Yeah. So some of the generals try to stop their men because they know that the order for war hasn't been called. And they also know that they're not in a very good position right now. Because, like, once Uh again, Umba is up above. Right. But, like, the rush of men who think that war has started has happened and you just can't snap people out of that mentality very quickly. Mm -hmm. So the generals sort of were like, ah, fuck, I guess we're going to war. And they pick up their guns. <laughs> so the Ethiopians are rushing up the side of this mountain to get to the fort. And they fight gallantly for six hours. And because the Italian reinforcements have not arrived, they the Ethiopians are able to win the day. Wow. Um, at the end, like, as night falls on December 7th, 500 Ethiopians are dead. But 1,600 Italians are dead. And there were only about 2,000 Italians at this fort. So only 400 managed to escape. Wow. That must have been really awful. One of, yeah, one of the uh, casualties is Major Toselli. Oh. In some accounts, it says he killed himself. Oh. Okay. Well, we'll, We'll leave it at that. Yeah, I he kind of seems like the man who would kill himself. Well, it sounded like he was preparing with Ave Maria. Yeah. Tears in his eyes, looking out. Italian man, drunk on wine. A soldier to boot. Yeah. One of the things that is cool is that after this defeat, there's a clamor to recall all troops from Africa and end this, in quotes, adventure. Mm-hmm. Something that was heard in Rome's is it piazzas? piazzas? Yeah, a piazza. Or just sorry, that was yeah. really dicky for me to say. Piazza. <laughs> so in Rome's piazzas and student forums, there was uh, a chant went up, "Viva Menelik!" Oh, oh. So it's just like oh. I. F- <laughs> That's pretty cool. I didn't know that. It is. Well, I feel like it might have been like how America responded to the Vietnam War. Like, how college campuses responded to the Vietnam War. I have a feeling that's what was going on with the Viva Menelik. But I do like that. So, the Italian survivors, which was about 400 men, retreated back to another city called Mekei. Mekei? I can't pronounce this one either. It's M-E-Q-U-E-L-L-E. I'm going to go with Mekei. They arrive on December 7th, so it takes them... Oh. So it takes them like a day for the survivors to get there, but I'm assuming the survivors aren't being burdened down with anything. They're just like running for their lives. So in McKelly, the Italians had taken over a local church and then they had burned all of the other buildings down (gasps) and they just barricaded themselves into this church. Okay. There are about 1,500 Italians there, so when the survivors get there, it brings their numbers up to 1,900. Mm-hmm. Menelik sends an advance guard because his army of 1,500,000 people is very slow. So right. this this advance guard is led by General McKennon, M-E-K-O-N-N-E-N. Uh-huh. McKennon. 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 No, that's not his name. He... <laughs> He has 25,000 men with him, 
And he is Menelik's first cousin, and he's been at court for most of his life, which means that he has known and befriended many of the Italians that have come to visit. And so ah. he he also is of the opinion that, like, he just wants to end this diplomatically. And a lot of people within Ethiopia start thinking that he's soft on Italy. Oh, that's something you do not want to be accused of. Nope. And McKinnon doesn't really help because for the rest of December... He corresponds with the Italian general that's in McKelly, hoping to come to a diplomatic solution. But the Italians sort of take advantage of this hospitality and just feign interest in peace talks until reinforcements can arrive from Italy. Like, they're being shipped out. I'm really pronouncing these names all over the place. (laughs) So General McConan writes to the Italian general, Uh How are you? I am well, thanks be to God. Your soldiers, are they well? Mine are fine. In the name (laughs) of the Emperor Menelik, I beg you to set free our land, otherwise I will be forced to make war. I beg you, go away with your soldiers. Your friend, Mokainen. (laughs) That's fantastic. How are you? How are you doing? Cool. Please leave. I really don't want to kill you. I love you. Bye. That's a great paraphrase. So the Italian general, with equal courtesy, explained to McKinnon that his king had ordered him to stay where he was and therefore he could not withdraw. And he, this is a quote from the Italian general. Believe this, I have here the very best guns and some excellent cannons. (laughs) So I just, I have the very best guns and some excellent cannons. Anyway, back to this. All right. So on January 6, 1896, Menelik finally arrives at Mikeli. Mikeli. I don't know, figure that out. Maybe I'll just edit this out this whole time. <laughs> but he arrives at this church where the Italians uh-huh. have barricaded themselves in. And his plan was never to stay here. His plan was to, like, leave McKinnon to deal with this and, like, go up to the Eritrea and deal with, like, the other, like, the... He wanted to reach the Italian army before they got to this church to help defend it. Mm-hmm. But that plan was thwarted because <gasps> on January 7th, a mule fucks everything up. Oh, I feel like a great title for this episode. (laughs) A mule fucks everything. So there was a runaway mule that ended up going in between, like, the no man's land between the church and where the army was set up. And the owner of the mule had run after it. And therefore, the Italians started shooting. And then the Ethiopians had to start shooting. Oh, no! So since McKinnon had not really done anything... He is very worried about his reputation and his standing in court. So he goes to Menelik and asks to lead an infantry attack the next morning. Menelik agrees because he needs this general to prove himself. Mm -hmm. And so McKinnon spends the night preparing for battle. And this is where I'm going to leave it for this episode. Oh, wow. I think that's a good place to end because like... yes. And then a donkey fucked it up. And then a donkey fucked it up. (laughs) Da-da-da! 
And yeah, so in the hey, morning, it's a really good place. we will get back like right into the heart of the Italo-Ethiopian War. Mm-hmm. And yeah, I feel like, I mean, I feel like I've spoiled it because like I start off every episode being like, Menelik is the only African monarch not to get colonized. But you're telling the story of how. Yeah. Yep. Does that make sense? And that's why this story needs to be told. That's why I keep asking, I get asked by people when I tell them, what, you know, well, why is Marissa making this podcast? And I say, oh, well, to be vague, because I don't want to give it all away, I say it's about the second half of the 19th century in Ethiopia and their non-colonization and the characters that are in that story. And they said, why does it need to be told? And I kept going, I don't know, but it's really interesting. Like, I just kept being like, it's really interesting. But you know what the key is? It's not that it's just really interesting. It's uh, an oddity of history. Yeah. It's an exception to the rule. And exceptions to the rules need to be told. I'm going to include that. <laughs> especially, especially when it comes to motherfucking colonization. Yes. All right, are you ready to... Oh, I no, I'm supposed to say things. Like, uh, if you have any questions or comments or corrections, please email us at somethingtosomeonepodcast at gmail.com. My name is Marissa Kakaro, and I hope you enjoyed this podcast. If you did, please consider leaving us a review and telling your friends about us. Anything else you want to say, Hannah? Just... Thank you for listening so far, and we hope you join us for the last episode of Something to Someone. Yeah. Season one, at least. Yay. <laughs>